Gartner, they do this hype cycle, which tells you where technology is. And they basically predicted, and this is back in 2007, they predicted that virtual worlds and the 3D web, the metaverse effectively, was about, be about 15 years time before it started to enter the mainstream, which is exactly right about now, actually. All right, welcome to another episode of Built on Web 3. Today, we're thrilled to be chatting with Dele, who is the CEO and founder of Metami, um, as well as a few other things. So we'll get into all, everything you're up to in Web 3. Dele, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So we like to start off uh, our interviews just by talking about Web 3 in general, just to get a sense of how you view Web 3 uh, here in 2023. So Dele, what does Web 3 mean to you? I mean, I, good question. Um, you know, it's interesting. I wrote a book about Web3 back in 2012, and it's come to mean a lot of different things from what it means today. I think the general consensus view today, it's like decentralized, a decentralized web. Decentralized, decentralized transactions, I think, really epitomize what Web3 is about today. Love it. And if you were to explain that to someone who might not really understand what that mean, what decentralized means, or maybe like maybe you're explaining this to your mom or your dad or something, mm. how would you explain Web three to them? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's generally been the principle that's underpinned the internet from day one in many regards. And but it's to explain it in very simple terms, it just basically means that you can enable things to happen, like transactions to occur, without having a central party. So like when you send a letter to someone in the old, if I was telling my grandmother in the old world, where you used to send a letter by mail, then you'd have this centralized authority, a post office that would take those letters and then distribute them. But in a decentralized world, it's sort of almost like where there's a choreo in every corner and you can just put it inside the choreo and the choreo makes sure it gets to where it's going. So you don't have this central authority that oversees it. And in the Web3 world, that is a network that facilitates that. And I suppose the thing that's really important in that regards is that you can do it in a way that is trustless. There's a term that's used in the space, i.e. that you're not afraid that when you give that letter to the courier that he's going to open it or send it to his mm. cousin but it's going to get to where you want it to go and you don't have to worry that the person that's taking the letter or the facility that's taking the letter is going to interfere with that process in any way the the only thing that could like popped into my head was uh if you were comparing the the postal service uh, to like the old world i was already thinking about like carrier pigeons and how they're like the super <laughs> old world and how that was way too centralized of a system for sure yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. putting the trust exactly. into pigeons yeah um i <laughs> want to go back to something you said you said you wrote a book on web three in 2012 um yeah. sometimes sean and i ask for predictions of like hey what's going to happen in 2023 but what were your like predictions or what were you thinking was going to happen in 2012 like 10 years later and like what's actually yeah 10 years ago what yeah. were your predictions and what yeah. are they now like yeah. let's do a comparison that's a good point um great question and you know i wrote the book because there was this whole sort of view that you can't predict what's happening in this space and it's like well actually you might not be able to predict what's happening in the next two or three years but what's coming macro scale is kind of clear 
There were 21 guiding principles around what was driving this transformation. Um, so I think what some that really stood out to me was um, me-centricity, this idea that people would become a lot more self-centric and that they would become the kind of stars of their own stories um, was a trend that has really is on steroids now. Um, <laughs> You know, at this stage, it was um, the the whole sort of narrative around privacy was very nascent, um, you know, and actually the, we were one of the first, we set up an NGO shortly after publishing this book to call for universal digital rights as an extension of human rights. And we were the first organization to call for that. And the idea of digital rights as human rights has now got a lot of momentum. I mean, even the UN has a body to look at that when we first approached the UN about it, it was like tumbleweed. So I think um, that's gotten a lot of traction. Um, that social platforms would become bigger than states, in, than many states in, in many regards, I think is another thing that we've seen come true. There, you know, one of the things that I was excited about exploring in the book at the time was... Um, how we started to create virtual states, virtual nations. And, you know, a great example was the island of Tivolo, which um, would be underwater by the end of this century, and the end of this decade, I, mm. I believe. Um, and so how do you deal with that, where there's a sovereign nation which has sovereign citizens that no longer has land? And, you know, in, in the current global paradigm, there is no such thing as a nation state without land. Um, nation states are defined by land mass in that regard. So how would that happen? So, you know, we, I explored this idea of virtual nations and virtual states emerging. And there's a lot of that that happened at the early Web3 phase and at the early, let's call it the crypto Web3 phase, um, which um, became, it's sort of died down a little bit, but I, kind of part of the, lexicon and you know culture of you know the decentralized web that, that you will actually get reorganization so DAOs weren't a thing back then but i think what we're now starting to see is DAOs, the, the, the kind of the macro principle of DAOs of these organizations that can be representative of um of of a sovereign entities um could 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 emerge and i, I think mm -hmm. the other thing generally the decentralization and i i didn't i don't know that I, I yeah i mean so there were a couple of ideas that were going around then like a multipolarity and this idea that the 20th century world was kind of anchored around a few sort of superpowers it was really the the eastern western superpowers the soviet bloc and the you know the western bloc if you will the u.s centric western bloc and that the idea that was emerging was that the world would become much more multipolar you'd have several hubs big hub blocks and you know brickham was emerging as one sort of block in that sense and i think that that's the seeds of decentralization that you know you would start to have these big epicenters these big hubs around which distribution would occur which would facilitate greater decentralization overall so those are the kind of mm. big ones that i think that's sprung to mind that were you know have played out to 
in in some sort of shape or form. For sure. Yeah. So take us back to to 2012. How did you end up getting involved in in what we called crypto back then? Um, so much so that you wrote a book about it. Yeah. I mean, so it was really more about the web um, back then, and and quite frankly, I think even you know, this Web3 nomenclature that we use now has really probably in the last two, maybe three years been used to describe the crypto blockchain space. You know, it was it was kind of moving blockchain crypto and moving on their own trajectory up until about 2020 or so when this Web3 term started to become embraced by the crypto and blockchain community. Um, but so, you know, I had been doing a lot of work in multinationals. I've been heading up digital for, I was headed up, in fact, it started when I was at Diageo. I was heading up digital for Diageo, the big beverage company. And so I've, I've been responsible for a lot of digital innovation. Interestingly enough, I was brought into Diageo to help them crack Web2. Um, so they had been quite mature in web one, you know, <laughs> and they needed someone to help them figure out web two. And, and I came in there, believe it or not. Um, but my big pitch when I was being interviewed was second life. This is the future of the web. This is what web three is looking like, you know, the metaverse kind of thing before it was really called the metaverse. I mean, I hadn't read Snow Crash at that point anyway. So, um, you know, and, and interestingly enough, I mean, a couple of synchronicities when Facebook did its IPO, the only reference use case it used in its roadshow was Diageo. Um, and I think the, and, and our most successful brand in digital social marketing was Smirnoff. And my business partner, the brand manager for Smirnoff went on to become, I think she's actually now global CMO for Facebook. So, you know, in many senses, I think it was an accomplished mission in that regards. But that got me thinking about, well, okay, what comes next after Web 2? You know, what does Web 3 start to look like? Yeah, so I'm interested in how, since you kind of lived through both, when you went to go lead digital at this company and you're pitching Second Life, like I imagine back then it was like the metaverse, you know, like this really cool digital world that we could build, which is exactly what we're seeing now. So I'm curious how you, how is it different than what you saw back then? Uh, I mean, it's really shocking, actually. Um, you know, so we actually built a, a conference center. So my team that um, I, I, I led was basically distributed um, across four regions, you know, Asia, Pac, Europe, Latin America, and, and um, Middle East and Africa. And um, so we had meetings like every month on WebEx, which was, they were just atrocious, it was a nightmare, right? So one of the first things, so what we actually did was create a virtual meeting space in Second Life. Um, and it was crazy, you know, not, none of our agencies understood what we were talking about. We had to find a really small boutique agency that could do the creative. And then IBM was our partner to do the infrastructure, get past the firewall and all of that stuff. So we built this thing and this meeting space with PowerPoint integration and whatnot. So two things I think were really interesting. I mean, I listened to Facebook's sort of vision of Horizon or whatever they call it and, you know, the work and it's no different to what we built back then, to be honest with you. In fact, in many ways, I mean, Google had a product called Lively, which was a browser-based virtual world kind of scenario you didn't you know it was very light from a client application side perspective um and i was pretty much as as advanced as what for, for 
Facebook is basically touting these days. Um, but the thing that was really interesting for me was that at the time, Gartner, you know, they do this hype cycle, which tells you where technology is. And they basically predicted, and this is back in 2007 that we built this in for Diageo, they predicted that virtual worlds and, you know, this, the 3D web, the metaverse effectively, um, was about it'd be about 15 years time before it started to enter the mainstream, which is exactly right about now actually so i wonder where the the gartner hype cycle chart is on the gartner hype cycle chart <laughs> yeah because <laughs> right. i see it everywhere now <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah it's, it's good when you said um you went into diageo to help bring web 2 to this like web 1 company let's assume that now we are web 2 companies and we're trying to get them to get into web 3 what was the driver um, what, what was like the primary driver or the foundational driver that you think can transcend uh, what companies use to adopt Web 2 when they were Web 1 that we can use to help them adopt Web 3? Do you think that they're similar or, or what is yeah. that? Because there's, there's not a lot of companies that are open to Web 3. Uh, some are, but they're still experimenting. Yeah. And, you know, I remember, you know, back then even, you know, people were up in arms about, Facebook and going, you know, taking brands into Facebook. But I mean, ultimately, and that was just 10 years ago. Yeah, too. yeah absolutely. It's, and, and, and I think, um, but ultimately, brands go where consumers go. And that's ultimately the driver. And, and I think with Diageo, particularly at the time, the issue that they were having was that their agencies were really struggling. They had a very centralized platform. Because, you know, it's all of these things they kind of swing around about. But they had a highly centralized and controlled platform um, that was run by an IT provider. And um, their agencies were really struggling to deliver campaigns that were connecting with consumers because people were on Facebook, people. Social media was really becoming a dominant form of marketing or digital marketing in that regards and tv was starting to wane in terms of its efficacy so i think that was the sort of underpinning driver i think when i look back when i look at that compared to where we are with web3 um yeah what can be learned from that i i think uh, well the challenge i think web3 has at the moment is adoption you know it's the um it's still too transactional, transactionally focused. Now, decentralized transactions make a huge difference and change everything. But I think the web two versus you know web three was that. I mean, you could look at web two and say that it was all about peer to peer. It was about giving the user a voice. It was about you know, two-way communications versus top-down, one-way broadcast communications. And that's true. Those technical things are true. But what it really translated to was that there was a cultural transformation that was happening, new digital culture that was emerging. And I think that that's the challenge that Web3 has at the moment, that it's still a bit too technical and financially um, isolated. You know, NFTs and have s broke the mold a bit to become a bit more of a cultural phenomena. Um, but that's really where I think the transformation will really take hold when Web3 comes 
more than just a way of paying because you know online payments you know through paypal and e-commerce and stuff like that isn't what really drove the big adoption of web2 was the cultural stuff that did so at what point did you kind of drop everything you were doing in web2 and and start a web3 company um so i mean it was a bit of a transition so i I first of all became interested in crypto blockchain in 2010 with the release of bitcoin and quite frankly again i wasn't really so fascinated or interested in it from the monetary perspective but i loved the story i love the story that this guy satoshi nakamoto appeared and created this new currency that's disrupting the world and he's disappeared and he's anonymous it was just like stranger than fiction and i was just like oh my god this is incredible yeah i know it was like incredible so that's kind of what got me hooked but i kept looking at it and and i was focused that this time I'd started to become quite focused on data as a resource and had and the transformative transformative power of data, but also all the issues around data, privacy, digital rights, human rights, and all of this sort of stuff. And at that time, it didn't really have a, it, it was an interesting um, technology and phenomena, but there wasn't really any applicability to the data revolution um, or the digital revolution in that regards that I saw. And then Ethereum came along in 2015 with smart contracts and that changed everything because now suddenly you had the ability to have, you know, decentralized compute and, you know, uh, immutable logic, you know, programmable logic that you could enforce. So that started to really thing in terms of its capability to address these more cultural, social issues around tech and data. Um, so I started to look at it a lot more seriously then. then in, and, and at that time, I, I think actually, yeah, 2015, I started working with IBM. Um, so um, in IBM, I was leading a lot of digital innovation was sort of my role, innovation within automotive, aerospace and defense. And so I was particularly interested in VR, mixed reality and blockchain and crypto. Um, so I started to do a lot of work on the enterprise side with clients around crypto and blockchain. And then in 2018, I jumped full feet headfirst into the space and set up Melamy and um, started to really build out um, a protocol around what we're trying to achieve. But before we get into Metami, um, I want to go back to what you said before about uh, how, you, how you predicted that we would become more me-centric, like indiv- individualized, um, and how, I, I don't know what the question is here, but there's something along, the, there, there's this thought of Facebook's adoption and social media growth uh, kind of helps, I think, exacerbate the whole like me-centric movement um but like what was the driver of human like just the consumer adoption of social media that helped it become such a dominant factor and do you do you think that there is going to be the same thing for web3 because web3 is even more me-centric in a way with like ownership Absolutely. And and I think you're absolutely right. And I think that is the vector. You are absolutely 100% right. I think what's so there's an interesting thing that's happened with social media in Web2, where the concept of me as a as an entity that I can control has emerged. And of course, there's a lot of 
we all know the dark side of social media and and how destructive it can be on a social context and i'm a big you know champion for digital rights and for better mental health protections from social media um, platforms in that regards more responsibility and accountability from them but i do think that we do also lose sight of some of the benefits and you know one of the things that for me is very distinct about web 2 and social media compared to the world before was that in the you know sort of pre web pre social web world um as an individual you had very little control of your reputation or your profile or your persona that was presented to the world i mean you could only really manage it in a micro sense in the terms of you know the people in your community that you interact with on a physical basis um and you had to be a celebrity a captain of industry or a government official or an aristocrat to basically have the resources to be able to define your persona in a way that you wanted it defined and social media has really changed that and of course everybody's talks about how people put up fake personas and all what not and that's kind of part of a process but i think the ability to actually define yourself in that way is unprecedented and that's a really powerful thing and i think to your to your question though thomas i think that quest the the challenge of course is that that persona and that you know all all that constitutes that persona you don't own currently it's owned by these platforms who monetize it and utilize it and exploit it um to to exploit you effectively as a as a as a resource as a as a resource to be mined and as a resource to be kind you know mined in terms of extraction of information and then mined in terms of extraction of your money um in terms of what can how you can be manipulated through that process and the web3 changes that dramatically because now suddenly not only do you have the ability to shape your your persona your 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 digital persona which frankly is going to have much greater reach than your physical persona right than your physical person um but you also have a chance now to own it and that's i think a really massively fundamental shift in in that social dynamic between citizens and the collective and that's the individuals and 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 mm-hmm. yeah so so tell us about metamy and kind of what that means to to own that um that part of ourselves digitally yeah i mean so that's kind of the mission with metamy is effectively to create a framework for people to be able to take ownership of their digital selves essentially um and 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 we've gone through a little bit of a of a pivot with this and it's partly because of where the technology has moved to recently you know i've been very passionate about data and about people owning their data and that data has becomes more data is has become more valuable than money and you know and it, and it's there's a reason why you know all of these social platforms and all of these digital services like search google and the like are all provided for free and to put it in simple terms it's because they can never charge you as much for the service as they can make from your data and in terms of having your data and providing the service to you for free you know what are they going to charge you a thousand dollars a year subscription five thousand dollars they're making way more than that on your data 
So there's so so you start to see that your data is actually worth more than money, um, than your money particularly as well in that relative sense, right? You know, um, so that's always sort of been a passion and direction, but it's so abstract for people. I think it's a difficult thing for people to grasp. So, but that you know, for us, when you think when I think about digital rights and and data sovereignty, you can bucket it really down into three core principles. One is privacy, which, you know, we is become pretty well discussed nowadays, and we're starting to understand the importance of that. The second, though, is property. And that is really about, well, your data as property, which has monetary value. Um, and then the third, which is the really interesting one, is about agency. And that's really about freedom. And, you know, whether that's freedom or free will, free choice, because these things really, you know, not only are we, not only is democracy at risk from, you know, the, the, the manipulation and exploitation that we are subject to through mass surveillance or, on these platforms, but the very notion of freedom, the very notion of free will, free choice is at risk because we're not really making free choices when everything is manipulated and in that regard. So that's kind of the important one. And where I see this now going, so what MetaMe really is focused on now is still a kind of data sovereignty, but the why of it is to use your data to create a personal AI. And that the idea is that, the reality is that we are coming to a point now that as people, we are sort of like up against these industrial Goliath AI systems that are designed to manipulate us and uh, in, an, in an extreme manner. And quite frankly, we are helpless um, against this, this kind of brute processing force that is applied to, you know, getting us to click on this or buy this or follow this person or lean our our, our, our um, you know, our politics in a particular direction. So the only way that, you know, we'll start to actually be able to have a chance in this kind of world to have any kind of freedom is to have some sort of AI agent that's designed to serve our needs, that's designed and trained around our needs, our wants and our desires and our information. So that's essentially what MetaMe is aiming to build. Yeah. So, so what will that look like? So once, you know, you guys build this out and we all have our own personal AIs, um, can you kind of paint a picture of what that means for a user? Yeah, I mean, so, uh, but I, I mean, I will say that there's a, it's a journey and the first journey to get there is to get to a, a collective um, kind of AI. And I think for me, that's really about combining machine intelligence with machine learning, if you will, and social intelligence. But I think where it comes, what it gets to is, you know, in the same way that you would ask Alexa or Siri, um, you know, find me a restaurant or find me a um, flight or a trip, you know, you would ask your AI agent to do the same, but it would be so much more effective because one, you've given it access to all of your information and you're not afraid to give it access to all of your information because it's designed to serve you. The more you've trained it on your information effectively. So the more data you collect, the better your AI is able to serve you. And so now I could say to my AI, 
Um, my AI, in fact, rather than me even having to say to my AI that I've got an appointment with Thomas tomorrow um, in Boston, where we're both at for a conference, um, my AI, well, I could, you know, you guys are meet, you're meeting with Boston, you're meeting with Thomas tomorrow in Boston. Would you like me to book you a restaurant? And then, you know, what well, it would then consult with Thomas's AI and find out what kind mm. of cuisine. Thomas likes what his schedule is, what the time frame is, and both of our AOs would get together and organize a perfect meeting spot for us to have a session, have a have a lunch meeting whereby we can be super effective and give us all of our notes of what we've previously discussed as we're going to that meeting. Got it. So it's more of the personalization of our AIs know us so well that instead, like you asked ChatGPT right now, what's the best restaurant in Denver? It'll give us the average of the best exactly. restaurant and versus in this world, it would give me my best restaurant. That's the money point. And that's the key to it. This, and this is a really important insight. These industrial AI systems will never be able to compete with an individualized service because they have to gravitate towards the median. They have to gravitate towards the average. They're always going to give you this broad, bland result because that's the only way they can work. They, it's, not, it's not operationally feasible for them to be able to customize themselves to your specific needs and the amount of information that you would have to share with them for them to be able to do that is would be dangerous for you to put in their hands based on their intent and then and as well you're not their customer you know their customer is the enterprises who pay them to give them behavioral results you know you are the not, it's not even the product, but it's 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 the it's your behavior. You it's that's what they're really selling to enterprises: the ability to modify your behavior in the interest of enterprises. So there's a real conflict of interest. They're not designed to serve your needs in that regard. Um, so they'll never and 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 even if they try to, it would be super bland because they're kind of you know they've got conflict of interest and a sh informational disadvantage. You know, it's like big data versus little data. Big data is good for population scale insights, but it's not good for individual-based insights. Only little data can actually work towards that. So, Dele, a lot of the so these concepts are cool. These business models and like the future is very cool. But doesn't it echo the same types of lesson, or like the same thing that we have in the Web two space of some sort of like almost recentralization again, because like wouldn't Meta Me then be the, like what, like what incentives do you have as Meta Me? Like because you also need to make money somehow, uh, and and aren't like do you really control like at, I as a consumer like would I really control like my AI or is there some ulterior like like training or something uh, behind that? So it's a complex question and it's multi-layered. Um, um, so I think there's a couple of important points in that. So firstly, in our ecosystem, in the MetaMe system, yes, you own your data. Yes, you own your AI and you have control and you train that um, around that. Um, a very important point around decentralization and centralization. Um, 
And this is something that a lot of people in the Web3 space struggle with a bit, but it's not that everything actually needs to be decentralized. Because if you actually really think about self-sovereignty, or if you look at the world right now, I mean, our data as individuals is kind of pretty decentralized right now. I mean, Facebook's got a chunk of it. Google's got a chunk of it. Amazon's got a chunk of it. Verizon's got a chunk of it. Social Security's got a chunk of it. Everybody's got it except us, right? <laughs> so in a yeah. way, you, it's pretty decentralized. When we talk about self-sovereignty, that's back to this me-centricity. What we're actually talking about is self-centricity. So, you know, what we actually are looking for is self-centralization for our information, but decentralized interactions between ourselves as self-centralized entities, right? So it's, and, and that's the thing, Sometimes you need centralization, sometimes you need decentralization. And that's the tricky thing that we need to work out. Which parts of the ecosystem need to be decentralized and which parts need to be centralized? And certainly from an individual perspective, we need to centralize our data around ourselves so that we can centralize our AIs around ourselves. And then from there, we can then start to talk about how do we act collectively mm -hmm. because we don't want to build a, you know, self-centricity doesn't necessarily mean selfish. It can also be selfless, but it all starts with self. It all, you, it's got to be centered around self to then, and then we need to kind of teach people to get that balance between selfish and selflessness. Right. Right. So, <clears throat> so that's an important um, component. Um, but I think to your question about does it differ from Web2, it differs because you, I think it does, it does come down to both technical ownership, you know, so Bitcoin, for example, gives you this really powerful way to own your cryptocurrency. You know, it doesn't really matter what any legislators say or do, they can control the off ramps in terms of banks converting that into fiat but it's pretty decentralized. You own that money, you own your Bitcoin, and there's nothing anyone can really do to change that. They can't take it away from you, especially if you have it in a cold wallet and you know self-custody wallets. So you've basically given tech property rights through technology. And then you then overlay that with legislative rights and legal rights and all whatnot. Um, so that's a really important point about what Web3 does versus web two, the technology gives you a, a, a tangible a manifestation of these property rights, of these protections in a way that web two does not and cannot do. So um, that could be a good segue sorry, right go. there because I, I, I still want to ask you about the business model and I won't let you off the hook right. with that. Sure. I, I, I want to know yeah, how MetaMe makes absolutely. money uh, because, because that's like a, a thing too. But sure. um, this is going to be a, dig, a good segue. Like, why are digital rights human rights? Well, because basically it's an extension of the digital. The digital world is an extension of the analog world. And that's kind of, you know, that's an, there's a lot of talk. It's a lot easier if you think about all of these realms, the digital realm, the metaverse, and all of these things as extensions of the real world. You know, there's a lot of, talk around how they're completely new spaces and all of that. And they have new attributes and new components, but they are extensions of 
this world. Like, like I, I don't, I, I find the term artificial intelligence a little bit misleading because it's just intelligence, really. There's not really such a thing as artificial intelligence. It's just intelligence. And it's an extension of human intelligence, you know, and um, our, all our innovations are an extension of our analog self in that regard. So in that sense, um, our digital experience, as we see, you know, you look at things like, you know, uh, you know, without get, I'm trying to put, put this across in a non-politically biased manner, but if you look at the, um, the, the changes that happen in the political landscape, like the, like the January 6th storm of the capitalists, for example, that happened through misinformation and through sort of exploitation across social channels, you know, this stuff translates into the real world. Um, so, you know, and it's, and it is also about the mind, it's about the psych. So it is important that we accord ourselves that we recognize, because we do recognize in the physical world that we need to protect certain rights. We need to give people safety, safety rails and put guardrails around the freedoms that we want to have. And so that naturally extends into the digital world because the digital world is an extension of this physical world. And the same dangers that we face in the physical world exist in the digital world, although sometimes amplified and sometimes, you know, um, distorted or different, but same in core you know, abuse, um, theft, and et cetera, all of these sort of normal things that we need to protect ourselves from in the physical world, we also need to protect ourselves in the digital world. Mm -hmm. So in, I guess, in your opinion, then, what would like good legislation look like around digital property rights? Like what is like the perfect world that you envision that good legislation gets passed here? So, you know, I, 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 again, I, I think a lot of these things are a lot more simple than, than they appear to be. You know, I, certainly right now, and there's a future that is a little bit more difficult to understand from a legislative perspective. I think one of, like, I'll give you an example. Something that's more challenging is if you look at something like DNA records, right? Now... I have rights around my DNA information, but they're not exclusive rights to me because my DNA is actually collective and there's a whole clan or lineage or group of people who are impacted by decisions that I make with my DNA records. So if I go to 23andMe and decide to sequence my DNA, it's not just myself that I'm impacting. I'm impacting anyone who's part of that DNA line in that sense. So there are some complexities that you have to navigate around things like that. But I think, you know, but to answer your question directly, um, first, I think all we really need to see happen at the moment is a transition that digital assets or digital things are property. And, and based on them being property, we can then bring them under the protections of property law. And, you know, this is something we're seeing in the NFT space, for example, um, whereby, and you know, it's an interesting challenge because I think the problem with the NFT space is that NFTs don't give you that technical protection around property 
at the moment. It's kind of, I mean, you know, as, as we were saying in the prep for the call, we have a crypto media project, Meta Knights, that's really about, you know, the battle for the soul of the metaverse. And it's all about digital collectibles. But so I'm very pro this space. I say that to say that I'm very pro this space. But the promise, the language that people use around NFTs is, I, I, I don't want to call it deceitful, but it's not exactly accurate, right? You know, I mean, so the simple analogy I use with NFTs is that um, if you go and buy a song of iTunes in the old analog world, right, you pay 99 cents to get a song, you get an MP3 file and you get an email as a receipt that you've got this song, right? Take that into the crypto world, okay, you pay whatever in Matic or ETH for the song, um, you get an NFT instead of this email which shows proof of receipt, but the MP3 file itself is completely outside of this whole thing, right? It's just you get an MP3 file delivered to you. So it doesn't address piracy, it doesn't address any of these issues that we see with digital media in that sense you don't have the protections that are accorded by way of like you have with a bitcoin if you if i send you a bitcoin you've got that bitcoin and no one can take it away from you unless you send it to someone else that is not the case when we come to um nfts and digital assets in that sense and that's partly because the industry's grown up on money and it doesn't know how to deal with data or content as a digital asset um, in that regard. So that's one of the things that we're addressing in our, with MetaMe in terms of how we go about building this. But um, so that's the beginning. And that actually causes huge problems from a legal perspective now with NFTs. And there are all these cases like Hermes versus this artist, because when, if you, when you come to copyright law, you know, if you... so. Again, back to property. So what is, you have real property law, you have intellectual property law. And we can protect digital assets under those frameworks, real property and intellectual property. If, but the problem we have with intellectual property and copyright law now is that, well, the thing that is actually the property is the NFT, which is just like the receipt. It's not actually the object. So until you get to a point where the object itself is the thing that is protected by the technology, then you can bring it into the provisions of regular intellectual property law. It's a thing, it's a, it's a widget. It's a digital widget that is protected by copyright. Therefore, no one can replicate it without the proper provisions, rights, etc. No one can utilize it, you know, without the proper rights, provisions, etc. Uh, accordingly. So I think the process is quite small, just these little leaps to, um, some technical leaps and some legal leaps. Mm -hmm. So are, are we just missing case law then? Are we just like, is that the next step where we just need NFTs to kind of go through the courts and we need judges to make decisions that like, yes, this is viewed as property and we will protect it as a government? In some regards, yes, but I think that there's technical flaws at the moment as at, at the moment as well. So I think NFTs and you know we've been working on this, and, I, and there are other people working on solutions as well. But effectively, you need to first of all have a technical solution whereby the you know the MP3 file in the music case right needs to be the crypto object. You know it needs to be a primitive. You need to have that as the crypto object, and then we can describe that, define that as property. 
So, you know, once we, so two things need to happen. We need to create the framework whereby the MP3 file is a crypto primitive, where you can execute ownership rights, property rights around it technically, like you can with a Bitcoin or with a cryptocurrency. So we're working on a solution around that. Um, and then the second thing then is then for law, just to recognize that, well, okay, this is a digital property. This property, this digital property is just like any other property, whether it's intellectual or real property and can be protected by those. If, if we wanted to dumb that down to like a real world or like as close to a old world example, I like the new world and old world kind of um, mm. uh, idea here. But uh, so what you're talking about is like that MP3 that, that you get or the, this image that you get. Uh, right now you get the JPEG and then you also get this NFT. The NFT is that receipt. This is a kind mm. of, and what you're saying is we want to combine the two so that the, yes. the two are one and then that becomes that uh, unique object kind of akin to like if you watch a movie at a movie theater they have a secret watermark so that if you re record a movie you kind of know like hey that this movie was actually intended just for this business for this audience um, or, or yes. like a secret signature within an mp3 that says hey this song was actually intended just for this user. I think that was called DRM. Yeah. <laughs> it, part of it is digital rights management. I mean, and I, but you know, again, it's like, I mean, look at, I mean, it's a, there's a kind of, I, I feel a bit like a digital archeologist sometimes, but you know, you look at um, Bitcoin came out of um, BitTorrent, right? The bit, the peer to peer bit, peer-to-peer -peer, yeah. um, framework, which is kind of what the internet always has been. But Napster, obviously, is the great use case of that and, and how it transformed the music industry because of piracy and, and this whole thing. That's the fundamental problem that we've had with digital media, this ability to replicate it. Once something is digitized, you can replicate it very easily and therefore it's subject to large piracy. And NFTs do not solve that problem. They, they kind of solve it in a very, it's kind of like the, they solve it in a very superficial way. It's it, like if you yeah, have an ice receipt. cream, right? Does it say like, hey, yeah. Those, yeah, with a receipt. receipt. It's, yeah. Like you, it's, like, it's like you have an ice cream and I come and take the ice cream away from you and I eat it and you show me, but this is my receipt. This is my receipt. What use is that to you, right? You have to then, what are you going to do? Go to a centralized authority, a police officer or a judge or a court to try and enforce action against this receipt that you have. But meanwhile, the ice cream is eaten. So... That's that's the it's it's a bit it's a there's a lot of talk about what NFTs could be, but until that problem is addressed, you're not actually solving the real problem that is around digital media. So, so the problem here is the media that's attached to the receipt, because there are still a lot of valid cases for the receipt. You know yes. the NFTs, right? Yes. Like memberships being one. Like you can token gate something, and I get to say, "Hey, I own this thing. Here's my receipt." Yep. And they say, "Cool." The the yep. media doesn't matter in that case. This is kind of like a, yes, a thing exactly. that's there. So what you're yep. saying is we need to somehow encapsulate the media as part of that receipt. Absolutely, because I mean, token gating interesting one because the NFT then is the thing, right? The 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 the, the access that you the, it's the key that gives you access to this community it's, it is the, it's the original mona lisa yes it, and and you can and you can tell like yes. that this is it's not, real yeah fabricated exactly yep. and it can't be replicated someone else takes a copy of that it's not going to give them access 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So maybe we can dive into a little bit more like intellectual property. I assume you're tackling that with uh, your, what did you, the Meta Knights, I think you called it. Um, tell yeah. us about that project and, and kind of how you're handling all this. Yeah, I mean, Meta Knights is basically, uh, it's a fictional story to, about the uh, battle for the soul of the metaverse. And it basically, you know, we, we've done a lot of work on the policy and tech side on the left brain side of the house, right, in terms of policy, regulation, protocols, technology, solutions, and all that. But I realized, you know, we're not going to get a mass movement and get people to connect with this stuff unless we find a way to connect with them emotionally around it. So we created Meta Knights as a fictional franchise to, in, you know, we call it transforming ownership through storytelling and play. That's kind of our mission with Meta, Metaya Media, the company that we spun out to um, oversee this. And, um, you know, the idea is that we inspire people, particularly Gen Zs, to understand or to be curious, to address the question of why about crypto, Web3, decentralization. Um, so it, uh, to give them a, a reason as to why this stuff is important. And then through play, so we're creating a video game as well around it and a metaverse game, metaverse platform around it, through play to then teach how. So how do you have a wallet? How do you, um, what is a public key, private key? What's the you do transactions what's cold storage what's token gated access what are all of these things teach that through play um so that's sort of the thing and it becomes its own ip and so what we've um done in that sense as well is we it's a we bake the story is takes the form of a comic saga motion and um we've created various formats comics and animations like motion comics around it which we distribute as NFTs, or we distribute in as these digital collectibles. So in that sense, we are, it's our first pilot use case around this new type of crypto media, as we call it, um, which becomes this small, you know, ownable media. And, and you know, um, um, so we're building out our protocol around that, and then Mennonites will be the first proof of concept of how an ecosystem and how a function like this can work. So um, th this seems like it's following a similar play that Sean and I have actually been seeing through different kind of initiatives that are like the, uh, they don't advertise themselves as crypto or Web3 or NFT things, but they have that element behind the scenes. Um, and I, I like that because it helps kind of break down that really terrible UI UX that anything with Web3 has to yeah. do with right now because it's infuriating and it's really complex unless you know how to do it. Absolutely. And I agree. And I think, you know, I, I, I sometimes get up in arms about Web3 because I, and I, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of the term, to be honest with you, um, because I feel in some ways the web is all about experience. And I think, you know, we're much closer to an internet two world than a web three world. Um, you know, particularly from a user experience perspective, you know, we're kind of like, it's like pre windows, right? It's like DOS, um, where we, where we are in the web three windows, space. Windows yeah. 95, 98. Yeah. It's not even around the corner. Yeah. You know what I mean? Maybe it is. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and, and all of that to mass to consumers and mass markets is meaningless, right? In terms of, if you think about it, even like with Web 2, you know, it's sort of like 
could you determine what was a web two interface versus a web one interface? Okay, web one, web two kind of had, if you were going to take a very strict definition, you would say it had um, user inputs like comments and feedback and two way sort of comms and whatnot. But overall, you just kind of started to move towards this journey of best practice. I mean, for me, I think two apps, two web, two apps that are phenomenal in terms of user experience, Tinder and um, Uber, you know, literally just click a button and something knows where you are. All of that stuff that it does in the background, you know, knows where you are, comes and gets a driver to you, tell it where you're going. And that's it, you know. No payment, nothing, all done, amazing. And similarly, you know, with Tinder, swipe left, swipe right, it doesn't get easier than that. So as Web3 has to go beyond that, it has to be an even better user experience, an even simpler user interface than that. And so I, I, I feel like the interface experiences that we have today are very much internet to more than Web3 in that regards, but yes. I wonder if the so the current kind of best UX practice is having a nice UI right now in like our Web two world. I, 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 it'll be kind of cool to see that shift towards like yes, we'll still have a nice UI in Web three, but the UX component will be that personalization aspect uh, versus just UI. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think you're right. That's where the magic starts, like Uber in that sense, you know. GPS and all of these significant technological technological innovations that had to happen for that simple service of you clicking a button and knowing where you are and you telling where it's going, where you're going, and it tells you how long and all of this sort of stuff. Um, the Web three stuff is the rich functionality and the new type of functionality. The interface needs to be very simple, intuitive, and I think AI is going to play an important role in that as well. You know, voice and chat are going to become increasingly important parts of the user interface and the web3 will give us better security better personalization because we'll be able to share richer data because we'll be we'll, we'll because it's trustless we won't be worried about what happens to that data um in that in that regards and yeah i think then you start to have a real sort of next generation internet experience um being possible as we're talking here, it seems like you have like three or four companies that you are running right now in Web3, all of which are very long term, you know, like no obvious way to make money right now. How are you funding all of this and how are you making yeah. money? Yeah, making money. That's, yeah, let's get back to the business model. I was just mindful of that as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, I think, um, but, you know, I mean, so Meta Knights, we ran a Reg CF campaign. We raised a million dollars against that. And um, we're, getting ready to launch a second one um, where we can raise up to 5 million. You know, we're community funded um, in that regards. And our projects, you know, have not necessarily, you know, we've been always been a bit ahead of the market. So that's always been challenging with venture capitalists and, and the like. Um, but I think the market tends to understand. We can talk to the market quite well. And um, we've been quite successful in, in, in that sense. Um, and with Meta Me, can you redefine? Can you can you repeat that again? Of like, how how did you raise a million dollars? Was what was that through? Um, through crowdfunding. Through so we used we ran a campaign on startengine.com, and um, but that's something again that changed with the Jobs Act recently in the last five, three or four years. 
Um, so we can basically raise funding directly from consumers. Um, from And it's a great model because you not only raise capital, but you build a community and you build a customer base um, at the same time. So that's been interesting. And now we're in the sales cycle with Meta Knights, uh, where we're selling our comics and, um, and uh, collectibles associated with the saga as well. And, you know, and there's licensing. So that's kind of, Meta Knights is a content company more than, and it's like a next generation content, next generation media. Um, but it's, so licensing is a big sort of pathway um, to revenue. We're, we're talking to, working on several licensing um, deals around that at the moment. Um, but to answer your question very specifically on the MetaMe side, on the data monetization side, I mean, our model, our model is relatively straightforward. It's like a, a triple-sided market, but for simplicity's sake, just say a double-sided market, whereby we enable people to monetize their data um, with brands in a zero-party manner, and we take a cut of a, a commission um, from both brands and consumers. So well, our interests are very very deliberately aligned with both sides of the market in that regards. We serve both customers in that regards, and we help consumers get the maximum value for their data. And, and also enterprises as well get the maximum value for their data because they became, become, behave like entities in that regards who can collect their data and kind of monetize it in that regards. So that's one um, business model um, side of it, which is quite straightforward and, we think that really scales. Um, the The question always becomes the value of the data, but that's just a quota kind of thing. Um, and then licensing, you know, licensing the platform to third parties, you know. But in many ways, you know, a lot of the core IP in Geo, so we want to make it most of the core IP open source. So, but MetaMe is sort of like the red hat um, in our ecosystem that then kind of builds application level interfaces and things like that that can be monetized through licensing or through value-added services that it creates uh, on top of the protocol effectively got it well that hour went by way faster than i thought i didn't look at the clock until just now so (laughs) thanks for being on the show this was a lot of fun we learned a ton thank you it's uh, been great fun thank you for having me